Welcome to America now. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Welcome, everybody, to Freestyle Friday here in the Freedom Hut. And what a day. Usually you don't get this kind of news on a on a Friday. D.C. tends to shut down on a Friday. I used to live in D.C. It's amazing how many people in the government work a four-day, really a three-and-a-half-day week. But the American health care bill is, well, if not dead, it is certainly on hold. Uh, there may there may be some new version of this that comes out. I had a feeling this was going to happen. We've been talking about this in detail from the beginning. And at the very last minute, Paul Ryan, at reportedly the behest of President Trump, pulled it. Said, we're not even going to put this forward. We don't want the additional embarrassment of putting this to a vote and losing. So let's just not do this. So this is a belly flop in the shallow end of the pool with a sunburn and a cell phone forgotten in your pocket. Uh, This is not good. Uh, It's not the end of the world, to be sure, but it's not particularly encouraging. Uh, And given the timeline here that the GOP has had seven years to figure this out, One has to look at it and say that it's reminiscent of the college student who at the very end of the semester shows up when everyone's handing in their term paper and says, I didn't have enough time. Well, you had seven years, bro. You've had a lot of time. You've had all the time one would think in the world to come up with a bill that would get through. The House voted 60 times about over 50, uh, to repeal Obamacare. Dozens and dozens of votes. Oh, it was all so clear, wasn't it? Vote for us. We'll get rid of Obamacare. Obamacare is terrible. Obamacare is a constitution-destroying legal monstrosity. You can't allow this thing to continue one day more. Now it's eh, going to continue for some days more. That's quite a shift, isn't it? Quite a change. To be sure. All right, we got Paul Ryan, we got Trump, and yes, even Nancy Pelosi weighing in on this whole situation. Let's let's start with Ryan, who was willing to say that this was not this was not great. Play Moving from an opposition party to a governing party comes with growing pains, and well, we're feeling those growing pains today. We came really close today, but we came up short. I spoke to the president just a little while ago. I told him that the best thing I think to do is to pull this bill, and he agreed with that decision. I will not sugarcoat this. This is a disappointing day for us. Doing big things is hard. All of us, all of us, myself included, we will need time to reflect on how we got to this moment, what we could have done to do it better. But ultimately, this all kind of comes down to a choice. Are all of us willing to give a little to get something done? 
Are we willing to say yes to the good, to the very good, even if it's not the perfect? Now, the Democrats promised transformation on health care and gave us devastation. The Republicans have been promising reclamation for years. And what do they give us? Uh, I don't know. Looks like nothing right now. We're being told that there'll be a continuation of Obama policies. I think there's some uh, dishonesty here as well, or disingenuousness, maybe a better way to put it, because we've been told that repeal was urgent. Now we're told that it can wait. We've been told that Obamacare had to be dealt with first before taxes. Now we're told that we can just move on to taxes. Well, which is it? There's only so much the American people, or at least the American people who voted for these members of Congress and the GOP, are willing to have a hand waved in their face to say, no, 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 you, you, just, don't, you just don't get it. You, you don't understand. It's, it's complicated. Let the experts handle this. Well, the experts look rather foolish right now. Those who have been saying for years that they knew what they were going to do, that Obamacare repeal was a straightforward process. Repeal and replace. It was a chant, and oh, it was a fun one. Sounds like it was just that, though. A chant. Nothing more substantive and nothing more to make of it at this point in time. So Ryan's saying it's a disappointing day. And then we, of course, have to look at who will get the blame for this, such as it is. You've got the uh, the Speaker of the House saying that Trump gave his all. The president gave his all in this effort. He did everything he possibly could to help people see the opportunity that we have with this bill. He's really been fantastic. Still, we got to do better and we will. Yeah, well, that's for sure. Uh, Trump, I think, will move back to some of the issues that are even more popular uh, and and more obvious as political wins than this one. Uh, Immigration is something that'll be really important for the Trump agenda now, and we'll see if the Congress is willing to take action on that. I'm starting to get this sneaking suspicion that a lot of uh, a lot of the Republicans in the House and, and in the Senate, too, have just been posturing on these issues for years. They saw the rising sentiment of conservatism and limited government that the Tea Party represented, and then they figured with this whole Trump wave, they had to go along with that too. And it's even bigger, really, because they've been pretending for a long time that they want to tackle the debt and they're going to deal with deficits and they want more limited government and they are going to force people are going to force us to pay for entitlements as we go instead of saddling future generations with debt. All of this that we've been told. Now we see they're in a position to do what they say they want to do, and they don't really want to do it, or at least some of them don't. And by the way, I don't mean those who wouldn't vote for this don't want to do it. I mean those who are pushing forward with a bill that wouldn't have been a repeal of Obamacare, that wouldn't have made this free market and market-based. Sure, it would have been an incremental improvement, but what we know of politics in this country is that if you have an incremental improvement, you're just waiting until the Democrats are in power, and then they'll change the increments. People either had to be made to believe because they would see it and feel it and know that less government intrusion in the healthcare market, that more choice, that more accountability 
for individuals to make their own health care decisions that was either going to be better and we would see it and we would know or not. Now, who knows? I don't know. Not clear. We're just going to be haggling over the price tag. They want to spend too much money. They want to spend more of our money that we don't really have, just running up the debt. And we're supposed to stand aside and just say, okay, you guys know what you're doing. You're the experts. Go for it. I remember when Paul Ryan was saying, we have to step in before things get worse. This is nothing short of a rescue mission, he said. Well, now you got uh, now you got Trump saying that this was never going to happen that quickly. Okay, you've all heard my speeches. I never said repeal it and replace it within 64 days. I have a long time. But I want to have a great health care bill and plan, and we will. It will happen, and it won't be in the very distant future. I really believe there'll be some Democrat support, and that'll happen, and it will be an even better bill. I think this was a very good bill. I think it will be even better. And they've got Paul Ryan saying that this will continue as well. Oh, two ways about it. But it is not the end of the story, because I know that every man and woman in this conference is now motivated more than ever to step up our game, to deliver on our promises. I know that everyone is committed to seizing this incredible opportunity that we have, and I sure am. We will see. They had an opportunity to seize here on the first go-round, and it did not go as planned. I think we can all agree on that. This is not the way it's supposed to be. And when I see the tweet storm from people like Hillary Clinton, who's saying that today was a victory for all Americans from her Twitter account, a victory for the 24 million people at risk of losing their health insurance. By the way, Medicaid is not health insurance. Medicaid is health care welfare. It's, it's you, you go in and somebody else is paying for your health care. There's, there's no insurance aspect to it, really. You're not paying, and there's not, it's not part of some risk and actuarial, actuarial study. It's just here's free health. But that's what most of Obamacare has been so far. The government paying for more of this. And this, by the way, this kind of stumble out of the gates with the Republicans will open the door, I think, to Democrats saying, see, they agree with us on a lot of this. Maybe we should push even harder for single payer now. You'll get the Bernie Sanders of the world saying that that price tag's not too high. And that's what the American people really want. The reason this didn't go through is that there are enough Republicans who want to keep the Medicaid expansion in place. There are enough Republicans who want to keep the subsidies for health insurance in place for earners at different levels. There are enough people who want to even allow the minimum coverage, uh, minimum benefits to stay in place. And of course, they want pre-existing conditions to be eliminated as uh, an issue in the marketplace, as well as allowing people to stay in the health care until they're 26. So there are plenty of Republicans who like what the Democrats did, at least in part on Obamacare. That's not repeal. That's make adjustments to. That's tinker with. That's nibble around the edges. And that's why we have a problem. That's where we are today. Now, Trump is saying that tax reform will be coming up. We'll be going right now for tax reform, which we could have done earlier, but this really would have worked out better if we could have had some Democrat support. Remember this, we had no Democrat support. So now we're going to go for tax reform, which I've always liked. Okay, tax reform. That'll be a good thing, I hope. 
although it's mostly corporate tax reform, you're not going to necessarily see your individual tax situation as an earner get a whole lot better. And I still think there are inherent flaws in a system that is a progressive taxation on income and not on wealth, but that's perhaps a longer discussion for another time. Uh, But here we are. Um, Here we are looking at the first time that the Republicans could have shown that they belong at the big boy table, that they could get this done, that they think in terms of strategy and they can untransform the transformational presidency that Barack Obama promised in terms of policies like health care. And this has not yet worked out. Uh, People are saying, well, there'll be more opportunities. There'll be a new bill. Okay, fine. But could they really not have seen this coming in the first place? As I started out telling you, as you know, they've had seven years. They've voted 60 times to repeal. Uh, what do all the people working for these members of Congress and working in the, bu- working in the, the budgetary functions of Congress, w- what do they do all day if not come up with a replacement? If you're a Republican that's been talking about this for years, what's your job been? Was it just all for show? trying to fool your constituency into uh, voting for you once again? Because just, just, you know, just wait. When we're in the position, we'll do it. Uh, it's it's disappointing, to be sure. It's not catastrophic. I know you're going to, a lot of people today are going to give you all fire and brimstone. Republic, why do we even waste our time? Republicans are a joke. No, it's not that. It's just sloppy. It's just junior varsity at a, at a time when we really need the A-team. You know, it's junior varsity when this is an opportunity for the Republican Party to set the narrative going forward. I do think that they'll get something on tax reform. I do think that they'll be able to bounce back from this. I don't think this cripples Trump or anything like that. But it doesn't look good. And it shakes the confidence of people like me who have been saying for a long time, all right, let's give the Republicans a chance. They should be able to do this. Now you've got people out there like the Pelosi's of the world celebrating, doing backflips, talking about how wonderful this is. Today is a great day for our country. It's a victory. What happened on the floor is a victory for the American people, for our seniors, for people with disabilities, for our children, for our veterans. The, uh, also, it's not just about the 24 million people who now won't have the off of uh, uh, health insurance. It's about the 155 million people who receive their health benefits uh, in the workplace who will not be assaulted by some of the provisions that the Republicans put in the bill, especially last night when they removed the essential benefits uh, package. Uh, so again, Any day when Pelosi's this smug and happy is a bad day for America. That much I can promise you all. All right, it's Freestyle Friday, which means we've got all kinds of stuff planned for you. Guests, we're going to uh, guests that are going to be joining. You'll be excited about them as they come on, I am sure. Uh, We also are going to be hitting all kinds of topics. I'll probably go into some random rants of stream of consciousness. And, of course, it is Action Movie Friday. Action. Hope you're ready. It'll be here any minute. Movie. Relax, everybody. I'm here. Batman. Quote. Shall not pass. Fridays. 844-900-2825. Can you stump the buck on Action Movie Quotes? Doubtful, my friends. But give it a shot. We'll be right back. Lines are lit. I love it. Everyone, everyone, wants, everyone wants to bring it to the, the action movie quote ninja over here. All right. You guys could. I, I'm now I'm going to get 
I'm going to get scorched today. I'll probably go 0 for 10. By the way, on CNN.com right now, huge headline, health care bill is dead. Oh, the gloating from Democrats. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to drink a little, a little extra uh, tequila this weekend to deal with all the Democrat gloating. Tequila is gluten-free. It's why I like it. As long as it's made with agave. I can't have gluten. Whole other story. It's actually a real thing. Some of us are celiac. It's not just a lifestyle choice like people in California who are like, I hate gluten, man. Like, it's so bad. Some of us really can't eat it. Uh, all right. We have, speaking of California, Tim out in California on KEIB. What's up, Tim? Repeal Obamacare and Tim Callum carrying for U.S. President, U.S. Senate, and U.S. House. Best major candidate, T-I-M space K-A-L-E-M-K-A-R-I-A-N. Okay. Anything else? Uh, my platform is love, peace, joy, truth, freedom, and self-control. Uh, all right. Thanks, Tim. Okay. Uh, see you later. Uh, what was that? Uh, that guy, he's he his freedom hunt his freedom hunt invitation is gonna it's gonna get rescinded. He's gonna be stuck somewhere else. Dave in uh, California on the iHeart app. What's up, Dave? Buck shield tie. Shield tie, buddy. So I'm calling you with a questionable action movie quote. Oh, okay, I mean I feel like we could go with a straightforward one, but if you want questionable, we could go for it. Go ahead. All right. Anybody else want to negotiate? Uh, is that under siege two when the guy pulls out the knife? It is not. That's why sci-fi is not your sci-fi is not your forte. And Fifth Element is questionable, right? So this is Bruce ah, it's not really an action. It's not really an action movie. I mean, I went with Under Siege too because it's you know Under Siege on a on a train instead of a battleship. But uh, hmm, I, I've seen The Fifth Element many times. It is pre uh, Resident Evil, Mila Jovovich's finest work. Yes, yes, that's very good. And, and I do know. I think I do know the. Uh, I think I do know the sequence that you're talking about, but I, I don't think we can call that an action movie. I think that's thriller, I, suspense, sci-fi, but that's all right. We, I was talking to the guys on the break. I really shouldn't have a, a segment called Action Movie Quote Friday and then have Gandalf against the Balrog with You Shall Not Pass, although I love that's a great quote, made even greater by uh, Jason Siegel in Forgetting Sarah Marshall when he stands up and just does it because he's bored at home. Those of you who haven't seen that, it's, it's a funny movie, although a little raunchy. Um, but yeah, so we, we need it. We were going to update that with some classic Schwarzenegger, Bruce Willis, Stallone. That's that's next on the list. Do you get nothing on healthcare, but, Dave? I mean, your premiums. You're, we're just going to talk movies. That's fine. But <laughs> well, I'm falling into that category where my um, employer covers it. However, um, it is disappointing. I got to say that the Republicans could not get it together. Yeah, it's, it, it, I think disappointing is the right word. It's not catastrophic, though, everybody. Other people are going to be like, oh, it's the end of the world. And Democrats are going to try to do a victory dance on our grave. But we're not in the grave. We're good. We're fine. We'll come back from this one. David California, Shields High. Thank you for calling in with Action Movie Quote Friday, which continues, by the way. Come on. Somebody's got to have I mean, some. I, I must have some deficiencies with the classic Schwarzenegger. Why don't you test it out? We'll be right back. He's an ex-CIA officer who knows how to outsmart the enemies of liberty. What I do have a very particular set of skills. Buck Sexton with America Now. 
Team, your mission, should you choose to accept it, call the Freedom Hunt Operations Center, 888-900-BUCK. Make contact. Unless you're under hostile surveillance. 888-900-2825. Everybody, we're joined by Ann Coulter. She's a New York Times bestselling author, writes a nationally syndicated column. Check out her latest at annecoulter.com. And her latest book is In Trump We Trust, E Pluribus Awesome. And we have some things to discuss. I know. What a week. <laughs> what? Yeah, this, we, we could really cover much of it just with the question, what is going on? H- how is it that I was told for weeks that, well, we have to do Obamacare first. We can't do taxes. Oh, I guess we can do taxes. Maybe Obamacare is not going to work out. It was going to be negotiated. All of this stuff from our own side. And what is happening? It seems to me what's happening is we're following the Paul Ryan agenda rather than the Trump agenda. And, you know, I don't want to dismiss tax cuts. I'd love to have my taxes cut. But I think the problem with the the old GOP, the pre-Trump GOP, is that they did the, the stereotype of Republicans being the party of the rich. I mean, they play into it, with, with starting with even tax cuts. And look at what the Obamacare repeal was. They didn't, they didn't repeal it in the sense that Anne will be able to buy um, a health insurance plan on the free market, something I might actually want. No, it was just getting rid of taxes, the taxes on medical devices, the Obamacare tax. Um, that, the whole gestalt of that was not the Trump winning campaign strategy. His was, I want to save American culture and America. Immigration, a huge part of that. And as I tweeted out earlier today, immigration covers, covers a range of sins. It solves lots of problems, or at least it helps almost every problem, making the solution easier. It helps with taxes. It helps with government spending. It helps with crime. It helps with drug addiction. It helps with national security. So you can, you can accomplish a lot just by fulfilling Trump's agenda on immigration and, of course, the trade deals. Um, so I, I, I'm, I'm really sitting back baffled after, after, yay, finally we have the president talking about the stuff that, 80% of Americans care about rather than, oh, 30 or 40% of Americans. Um, and now we're going right back to the old corporatist agenda. What does Wall Street want? What do the lobbyists want? I want to return to healthcare with you in a second, Ann, but since we're talking immigration, yesterday in the show I, I gave everybody the backstory and the details of this terrible case in Maryland, and there are just two takeaways that I think anybody reading about this and paying attention to this has. One is we are told that this is... Uh, that even though that he was caught at the border, the, the alleged uh, rapist in this case, caught at the border in the process, allowed to then enroll as an 18-year-old freshman in this high school, we're told that there's uh, nothing to see here, that this has nothing to do with policy, and then also, comma, by the way, you know, meaning that none of the policies that enable this individual to be in the position where he could have allegedly committed this horrible crime are under review or should be discussed as a result of this at all, of course. And then the other part of this is they, and oh, by the way, uh, people who are here as illegal immigrants are less likely to, to commit crimes than the native born. I just don't believe that. <laughs> like, I just, I, 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 I've seen all the, and they always refer to some study that I never get to see the study. Yes, 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 exactly right. I have a whole chapter on this, and actually most, most of my book, Adios America, is on immigrant crime, particularly child rape, because there's just so much to write about. I had to you know, settle on one crime, and that seems like a pretty egregious one. But um, chapter, I think it's chapter seven of that book. 
Um, I went through, that, that's how Adios America became Adios America. I had a different book in mind. Immigration was going to be part of it, of a larger theme. I'd already written a couple of chapters. I get to immigration. The first thing I want to look at is, <laughs> that's kind of important, how many immigrants, both legal and illegal, I mean, I never understood this distinction so many Republicans get excited about. Well, as long as they're legal, I don't know, if they're still taking jobs and committing crimes, I think that's a little bit worse. In any event, I go, looking for the data on this and buck it's not there (laughs) i spent like a week trying to find looking at the debates looking at government reports census reports pew reports um fbi reports oh no 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 the government does not want americans to know how many foreign-born are committing crimes much less you know the kinds of things i want to know what kinds of crimes um what happens to them how many get caught um all sorts of things like that no they will not tell us and and i mean in a way worse than that we we rely on a free press um, and an adversary media keeping keeping the government honest. Um, the media covers up immigrant crimes. I mean, they treat immigrants as if they're African Americans, and we owe them because of the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow. And this is one point that I think you always have to remember when it comes to immigration. We don't owe people living someplace else anything. We didn't do anything to them. If anything, we're rushing in whenever they have an earthquake, hurricane, warlords. We're, we're sending, you know, cheese packets over. Um, well, now thanks <laughs> to some federal judges, they have a constitutional right, it seems, <laughs> to challenge their ability to come into the country, which is one of the crazier things that I think any of us have seen in a long time. But can I just ask you, Ed, this is one of those, where's, I, I was reading this, I thought, where, where's Ann? It'd be fun if she could respond to this. In National Review, I have many friends who write there, they do some great stuff, but in National Review, Mona Sharon was writing about this case earlier, uh, you know, this case in Maryland. And she writes, as the survey by the Cato Institute shows, immigrants, both legal and illegal, are less likely to be incarcerated than native-born Americans. I, can I, where's the hyperlink? And, and Cato is an open borders outfit, as I've gotten into arguments with them before. But can I see this data? I want to see the data. Does it exist? No, and in fact, even the data that does exist um, gives the lie to that, but not as spectacularly as I think the truth would, um, because what the government reports do is, for example, the GAO just guesses um, on whether you're an immigrant or not, um, whether you're illegal or not. Um, FBI relies on self-reports. Um, okay, criminal, would you mind telling us <laughs> if, you are, if you are an immigrant and did you already break the law by entering our country illegally? But even those reports, um, way underestimating how many immigrants are um, arrested, are in prison, um, and put a pin in that for a second, um, even those reports show that, that immigrants are committing crime and are arrested, are in prison, way above their percentage in the population. As for the number um, of immigrants in prison, what I just said to put a pin in, one thing to bear in mind is the vast number of, of fugitives from justice, vast number, were born elsewhere for the obvious reason. They commit a horrible crime. The cops are looking for them. They run across the border to get home. Right. So That's the problem with immigrant crime. At least, you know, if you're an American, it's a little harder to hop on a plane, you know, to the Caribbean or, or to yourself go, go try to hide out in Mexico. We eventually will catch, catch most 
American criminals, at least in in some jurisdictions, maybe not Chicago. Um, but but not that's that's another problem with with immigrants committing crimes. They have an easy out to completely escape justice. It just seems counterintuitive as well that somebody who is an illegal alien in this country, the first the very first thing they do by nature of their situation is come is breaking the law, that they would be less likely to commit crimes than those who are are native born. And once again, the the pro immigration lobby always has this this talking point of how immigrants are the, the people coming into the country are somehow always better harder working yes. than all of us who are here and we don't we're not allowed to take offense to that i i actually do take <laughs> offense to that <laughs> I know, doing the jobs americans won't do because we're so lazy which is why we have this country that's so rich and powerful somehow but i, I digress yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah no absolutely right and um one other thing to keep in mind please notice that it's my side of this debate that's saying could we get the numbers how about the, the government count the numbers? It's their side of the debate that doesn't want that count being made. Yeah, I also would urge anybody who lives in a, in a major sanctuary state, take a look at the 10, you know, take a look at like the 10 most wanted by the FBI or the DEA. And, you know, you, you, oh, you, yeah, you, L.A. is hilarious. I'm, I, I use that in my book. I'm always asking people to post it. Look up Google right now, Los Angeles most wanted and try to find an American right. name. And meanwhile, as I was saying, I was reading a National Review that, you know, 7% of the population is non-citizens, only 5% of the prison population. I, I would really like to see where they're getting those numbers. And also, as we know, we, they don't have the full numbers on how many legals are even here. But I digress. That's I, crazy. I, it's like 30% even by the numbers that, again, way underestimate the number. It's about 30% foreign-born. Yeah, I, I, I saw this and I was like, this is just not right. But again, even, even on, on the right, there are people that are very invested in the narrative that even illegal immigrants are committing less crime than native born. I just I hear that all the time. I don't I don't buy it. But Anna, I want to just push back to uh, or go back to healthcare for a second here. Uh, what ha- what happens now? And we're being told that they're going to go on to taxes, which, by the way, Trump's tax plan is better, but it's not. It's also not amazing. It doesn't make. It's not flat tax. It's not fair tax. It's a cor- a big corporate tax break, which would be good for the economy. But where does healthcare? What he, he's really going to let it burn itself down? As that's that's what I saw today. He's saying that we're going to let Obamacare fail for a while. I I don't know. It's I, Buck. Sometimes I think I'm the last person in America who remembers how the free market works, which is weird because every other product we buy, <laughs> we buy on the free market. And listening to these Republicans, at least some of the Republicans, some are great, not enough of them, um, talk this week and looking at their bill where they're setting premiums and we're we're, we're working on the risk pool. I heard Ryan say today, "Hey, I know. Why don't you let the insurance companies do that? Just give us a free." market if they would just write a bill um, that had one sentence, there shall be a free market in health insurance, and they did nothing else. Keep the rest of Obamacare for a while. Um, I mean, just assuming that we're, we're starting here with health care. And then Anne could buy a plan that any normal human would want to buy. But right now it is illegal for Anne to buy an insurance plan or for an insurance company to sell a health insurance plan how much it doesn't cover eight billion things that i promise you buck i am never not going to deal with yeah and how, I much don't of, pay for. how much of this do you think is really is really that uh, a lot of americans uh, and not just on the democrat side a lot of americans expect somebody else to pay their medical bills because that's the expect that's what we've been led to believe will happen well that's certainly unfortunately the mindset right now but i think once 
free market plans are available, I don't think it'll take very long for people to start figuring out. I mean, I've, I've talked about this before and I've written about it. Um, in addition to my $700 a month plan that is acceptable to, to under the Obamacare law, but will not let me to go to any decent hospitals, um, just by the way. Um, in addition to that, I belong to a Christian health care group, health and it's it's health insurance, though by law they're not allowed to call it insurance. Um, I don't have to cover drug addiction therapy. I don't have to cover. I don't have to cover everybody's pregnancies. Um, I do have to be a Christian. It's fifty dollars a month, Buck. If, if you expanded, talk about risk pools. If it were open to to everyone, it would be twenty dollars a month. Everybody would buy it. Um, I mean, everybody buys often in states. They require you to buy health insurance. But, I mean, I don't really mind the mandate that you have to buy health insurance. I mind the mandates about what kind of health insurance I can buy, which, again, is not a health insurance plan that any normal person would want. Right. What forces Ann, and and Buck, by the way, and others, it forces people to uh, pay for other people's health insurance. That's It's yeah. really just about redistributing wealth. It's not about getting – it's certainly not about getting Ann in the individual market better care. No, that's right. And the worst thing about it, the, the, the trick is, I mean, yes, an awful lot of what the government does is redistribute income from, from people who are paying taxes to people who aren't paying taxes. But at least that's done, whatever you think about that, at least it's done overall through an income tax. Here, the redistribution is happening. We pay it through our insurance premiums. And then they wonder why insurance is so expensive. Yeah, no, I I don't know what they're going to do from here. It's going to be an interesting weekend for uh, Paul Ryan and company. Ann Coulter, everybody's New York Times bestselling author, nationally syndicated columnist, AnnCoulter.com to read her columns, and In Trump We Trust, latest book. And thanks for making the time. We appreciate it. Great to talk to you, Buck. Bye-bye. Take care. Uh, phone lines are open. Freestyle, um, Freestyle Friday is upon us, as is Action Movie Quote Friday. Come on, bring it. Action. Hope you're ready. It'll be here any minute. Well, we don't, we, I guess we did it again, but that's all right. We can, we can fade it out. There we go. People know. No, it's all right. I called for it. I know. I'm just saying. We don't, we don't want to over, you know, we don't want to overdo it. I got to get some new quotes in there for Action Movie Quote Friday. Uh, all right, hitting a break, and we're going to talk about national security, politics, all sorts of fun things in the next hour. Stay with me. Brent in New Mexico on the iHeart app. What's up, sir? Hey, Buck. Uh... Just one quick quote for you. Yes, sir. Would you, would you like a shot at the title? What do you say? And he says, yes, sir, I would. <sighs> I mean, all right, hit the buzzer. Wait, what is it? They're surrounded in the front yard, and the cops are all there. It's like one of the things that you used to talk about, like in reality, if it ever really happened, like the cops would let them really duke it out in the front yard with all the cops rooting it on. Uh, is that from Lethal Weapon? Yeah. All right, okay. You know, it, it took me a second to get there. We'll give me a half point. This is like in math when you show the work but get the wrong answer. Uh, okay, I'll, I'll take a half point on that one. All right, yeah, yeah. I remember that. Is that, that that's when Mel Gibson, is, Mel Gibson is fighting... Uh, is, wait, is it, is it... It's not Gary Busey, is it? No, who is he fighting? He's fighting... Yeah, is it Gary Busey? Yes, Mr. Yeah. Apprentice himself. Okay, yeah, Gary Busey, interesting, interesting individual, especially if you watch uh, Entourage. But uh, so it, it took me a second to get there, Brent. But uh, what are your any 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 thoughts on healthcare? You just you just an action movie quote mode because it's close to the weekend. Oh, I have a lot of thoughts on it. I think it's just all drama, honestly. I think every, uh, you look like the Al Sharpton's of the world, where they all want 
they don't want this thing to end. They want us to keep going because they all justify their jobs. And all these people that are trying to pass push this bill, it doesn't matter if they're for it or against it. They can all go back to their constituents. You know, they have all got muddled lines where they can tell people stuff, and I don't think they want it to end. I think they want this thing to go round and round and round and round. What do you think? Uh, I think that nobody wants to be honest about what healthcare really has become in this country, which is just a massive scheme for the redistribution of wealth that we expect that we will only have to pay a small... We're, we're all trying to get into a position where we pay a small fraction of the overall cost of our health care, and the rest of it will be picked up by somebody else. That somebody else is the government, but the government is really us, and so the cycle continues and continues. Uh, I don't think anyone's going to say that Americans it, it can have a free market of health insurance, but that also means you have to live with your choices. And I, look, look, I, I think that a uh, a mandate to buy catastrophic care may be where we're heading, and the sooner we can get there, the better. Uh, but in the meantime, there's just a lot of a lot of nonsense. And we were told things by our own side here, and that's important to keep in mind. We were told things by Republicans that now we can tell them pretty clear, not true. Uh, but Brent, thanks for calling in, man, and uh, thanks for getting that lethal weapon quote out of me. It took a second, but I got there. Alan in Florida on WNTM. What's up, Alan? Hey, hey, Buck. I got a quick explanation of the Ponzi scheme that is Obamacare so people have a better understanding of what, what's going okay, on. Okay, we got a, a little over a minute, but I'll give it to you. Go ahead. Won't, won't take you long. Uh, if you're old enough to remember when lotteries first came out, lotteries paid 100% every time somebody won. It took about a year and a half for them all to go broke. And what they figured out is there's no way that you can take enough money and pay all that money back out, so you have to start paying to make a partial payment. That's exactly what Obamacare does. It promises full payments. It has, what's happened is people have used it so much in the first couple of years that it's going broke because people are using it uh, and spending all the money before enough is taken in. So what they're going to have to do if they continue to go down the path of Obamacare is start making partial payments, which is exactly what happens in Europe, which is exactly what happens in Canada. That's why they all come here for major surgeries. Partial, partial payments meaning what? Well, it, instead of uh, everybody getting to have... Uh, Did we just lose him? I can't hear him. He's yeah, back. Sorry, if, go ahead. If, if everybody if everybody needs a knee replacement, only 30% are going to get it. And only those that are healthy enough, according to the rules, will they get it. Uh, I heard somebody the other day tell me... From, uh, Alan, you know, unfortunately, we're at time, my friend, but thank you for calling in on WNTM. Sexton with America Now. We are bold. The Freedom Hut is fired up as Team Buck assembles shoulder to shoulder, shields high. Call in 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Welcome back, team. Action movie quote Friday continues on. If you want to give a ring and see if you can stump me with one of those, by all means, do. Uh, I, and no, no Bruce Willis, no Schwarzenegger, no Stallone today. I just that's the that's the big three for me, and I got nothing. I'll, I'll even take some Van Dam quotes. If you want to throw those my way? Extra points if you have kind of a a, a, a slightly funky Belgian French accent while you do it. Uh, yeah, that's that's one way to go. Um, so I would call in with Van Dam quotes if you got those too. All right, we got good news. I want to give you some good news. A lot of people are going to give you today. Oh, my gosh, the Republican Party is imploding. It's all over. I saw on CNN uh, one of their 
a, a fascinating thing, a little a little peek behind the curtain from somebody who used to work at CNN as a, as a political commentator. There are commentators, uh, like people like me who used to go on, and they'll put under your name, you know, commentator, and then they'll also introduce you sometimes as a conservative commentator, which is really just a way of uh, saying that whatever analysis you have is tainted by your crazy politics. You know, you're just like one of those people walking around in a in a tri-corner hat with a musket, you know, handing out a copy of the Constitution to everyone you pass. And th- this is what they're, this is the imagery that they try to uh, evoke for much of their audience. It's all oh, conservative political commentator. But then they also have people who are just political analysts. And I always think that's a fascinating distinction because you're either a, a reporter or you're giving commentary on the reporting, i.e. analysis, but a political analyst is a way of elevating, and of course the political analysts over there are always uh, Democrats, um, and a political analyst is a way of elevating, a chief political analyst. And by the way, anytime you have somebody, the, the usage in media of chief and senior, I always love those, you know, chief political strategist, senior such and such reporter, uh, reminds me of, uh, a friend of mine once saying that strategic was a much overused word, or rather strategic is something like hummus that you just put on things to make it taste better or sound better. The word strategic. Also true of tactical, by the way. You can add tactical to any number of things and all of a sudden it's supposed to make it a lot cooler. Like, hey man, your vest looks kind of looks kind of beat. Like, that's not that cool. It's like, oh really? It's a tactical vest. Ooh, tactical, fancy. Also true of strategic. Like, you don't want to just be an analyst. You want to be a strategic analyst because then you're looking at strategery. Uh, so that's another one. And then, of course, if you're a political person, you want to be a political analyst, not a political commentator. Well, it depends on the network. But if you're a political commentator, then you're just some guy who's like, wah, 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 Trump is great. Wah, wah, wah. Uh, whereas if you're an analyst, you you have sources in D.C. You're part of the uh, elite establishment that knows what's going on and what you say should be held in a certain degree of reverence. Right. So anyway, one of the one of the political analysts over at CNN said that it is impossible to, to overstate. I think it was Gloria Borger. It was uh, impossible to overstate what a defeat this healthcare situation is. for. The, no, it's very for, that uh, what a defeat this is for the administration. It is very possible to overstate because it's not that big a deal. I'm more concerned about it not from the perspective of the optics and, oh, this it's a stumble out of the gate. They've fallen flat on their faces. I made a belly flop analogy earlier. Yeah, that's not great. But my concern is much more to, can we trust the Republicans to do in Congress to do what they've been saying they're going to do? Or are we always going to get caught up in this? Well, you know, there's these moderates and politics is the art of the possible that's not I don't remember being told that when we were when we were supposed to oppose Obama, the Democratic Party in 2012 and 20, uh, 2010. And yes, in 2016 as well. I, I don't remember anyone saying, well, you know, we're we're going to we're going to take back the White House and we're going to have a majority in the House and the Senate so that we can find the most moderate consensus positions possible that will even bring some Democrats on board. You didn't hear any of that in the early days of the Obama administration. Obama's first two years when he had the House and the Senate in Democrat control, they were just going off and doing stuff. Weren't worried about how it looked. I mean, of course, the media was on their side. I get that. But didn't matter that it was scorched earth. Didn't matter. There wasn't an ounce of bipartisanship, not not even a, a smidgen 
of bipartisanship, not even a tiny, tiny bit in any of those actions. And you had Obama with one of his more famous or infamous quotes, you know, elections have consequences. Yeah, they do. And that's what all of us thought with the Republicans coming into power this time around. The assumption was, okay, well, we now have people in charge. The Republican Party has people in charge that will be pursuing certain policies. And we will see what that looks like. Uh, Instead, we're being told, well, you know, that's not really the way this was ever going to go. That's not really how this was supposed to happen. Um, We have a, uh, we'll we'll get into that in one second. Um, uh, That's, I guess, a managing of expectations that we all have to go through now. So there's a good news story. Oh, before I go into the good news story, let me just say this whole notion of uh, there's nothing really that this is a huge deal. It, it can't be overstated how bad it is. It's not the end of the world. It really isn't. Uh, I, I think that they'll return to health care later on. And, and maybe they'll be able to build some political momentum. Uh, they'll be able to build some political momentum to get health care done after they've shown some progress on uh, taxes. Uh, if Trump has, I, I think this is probably fair to say, if Trump has a booming economy, And the numbers look really good. And of course, presidents get more credit for good economies than they usually deserve. But let's just say Trump has a booming economy that will create its own political momentum that will make uh, positive change on health care more possible. I think I think I could be wrong, but that's I'm trying to give you a glass half full. We're going to be going off on the weekend soon, folks. I want you to be, you know, be chilling, hanging out. You know, mind's clear so that when we come back from the Freedom Hut on Monday, we're ready to dive into all the day's events once again. I don't think this is catastrophic. I don't think it's a huge deal. I want to give you a good news story, too, to show you that there are other things that are that are happening now. Uh, well, you remember the Keystone XL pipeline? We had uh, Barack Obama reject it. In fact, do we have we have Obama? This is Obama's rejection of Keystone. We'll just play a little bit of this as a little reminder. Go ahead. Good morning, everybody. Several years ago, the State Department began a review process for the proposed construction of a pipeline that would carry Canadian crude oil through our heartland to ports in the Gulf of Mexico and out into the world market. Uh, This morning, Secretary Kerry informed me that after extensive public outreach and consultation with other cabinet agencies, the State Department has decided that the Keystone XL pipeline would not serve the national interests of the United States. I agree with that decision. This morning, I also had the opportunity to speak with Prime Minister Trudeau of Canada, and while he expressed his disappointment, given Canada's position on this issue, we both agreed that our close friendship on a whole okay, range right, of whatever. issues... And the point here is that they reject the Keystone XL pipeline, even... Left-wing Trudeau of Canada, and I know a lot of a lot of the ladies listening are like, "Oh, Trudeau!" Uh, even Trudeau of Canada was like, "Really? You're not gonna? The oil's coming out of the ground. You don't want the creation of the pipeline on U.S. soil and the the economic benefits and the jobs that it would create? Because why? You'd rather have us take this uh, across Canada, east-west on an east-west axis, and uh, for." export to primarily Asian markets? What's the point of If this is about climate change, and climate change is a global issue for the Democrats, as you know, I 
I think that climate change is not a not important, not a big deal. I, and I know people get so aggravated about that. But if it was really about that, well, then this makes no difference. And that's what the State Department's own analysis said. The reason Obama didn't go through with this was because it looked bad, because oil is yucky, because pipelines are bad. I mean, when I say it looks bad, it looks bad to the climate change community in America and around the world that just that really believes this, that thinks that oil is yucky and bad and dirty and it does bad things, even though they all use it for their cars. And uh, of course, worth mentioning that uh, oil or petroleum, 50 percent of what goes to market is used in products. It's not we always think of gas as what goes into our cars. But in fact, fossil fuels are used for a whole host of things, including uh, the creation of products. uh, And a large portion of it, in fact, is is used for that. So if we were to get rid of this stuff, our economy would come to a halt. It's just completely insane what they're proposing. And this anti-oil insanity that they have was the only reason for not uh, allowing the Keystone Keystone XL pipeline to go forward. It was just a straight-up pander to environmentalist interests and an environmental lobby that the Democrats rely on for donations, especially some big-dollar donations. But they're the, intellectually, they had no argument. The oil's coming out of the ground and going to get used and exported one way or the other. It can either benefit America or not. The Democrats said, well, it'll, let's have it not benefit America. The good news story I have for you is that the permit has been issued today. For the Keystone XL pipeline. So President Trump has been saying for a while that he would reverse that ridiculous decision from the Obama administration. Oh, wait, can we get Pelosi on this? I just want to play the yeah, Nancy Pelosi. She's, yeah, she has things to say about stuff. Uh, play Pelosi on Keystone XL. I met with some uh, legislators from Canada the other day and I said, you have two coasts, actually three. You can go north. Why aren't you taking this oil out through your own country? Well, because the Canadians don't want the pipeline in their own country, but they want their own oil to be uh, a reaching export market. Hey, we, we already have pipelines, and pipelines are actually a lot safer and better than transporting via freight train. But anyway, Nancy Pelosi, I... I don't know what to say to any all my friends who are Democrats who cling to this notion that the smart the smart party is a Democrat party. I always say, you know, Nancy Pelosi was is on your team and was third in line for the presidency at one point. Right. You get that. Okay, Game over. Uh, But Keystone XL has been permitted as in I should say has been given a permit. uh, And that is going through. So I give you a little happy news story here. Because the reason that the Obama administration wouldn't do it, it was it was blatant pandering to the environmentalist left. And in fact, uh, it's because they didn't want more protests. Like, hey, man, like, yo, pipelines are bad. Dude, have you seen those, like, videos of, like, like seagulls and the oil? And it's like, oh, dude, like, oil spills and, like, oh, it's so bad. And there's no argument really beyond that. This is people in a circle playing guitar, Pink Paradise, put up a parking lot. They got nothing really beyond that for why they don't like Keystone XL Pipeline. But that is an important constituency of the Democrat Party. Should keep that in mind. Uh, 844-900-2825. 844-900-BUCK. Action movie quotes. Welcome. Anything else you have in your mind, welcome. Freestyle Friday. 
continues right after this break. Marjorie in Virginia on the iHeart app. Welcome to the Freedom Hunt, Marjorie. Hi, Buck. I am original team Buckaroo. Oh, wow. All right. From back in the day. Original squad. Thank you for calling in. Uh, I have a question that I have posed to every commentator's page that I can think of, and nobody in the media is is even reminding people that the the Congress gave themselves a special um, uh, exemption from Obamacare. You got it, <laughs> and and absolutely nobody mentions this. Obamacare would have never taken off and gotten off the ground, and neither with this goofy bill that they've got out now. Uh, if if they hadn't have given themselves a carve out. Oh yeah, Fe- federal government employees have great insurance. By the way, they they have they have the gold plated. You show up, maybe you pay a copay of twenty bucks. That's all you ever have to worry about. Any doctor will take it. Federal federal employees have great insurance, and I, I think that it was very instructive that they would say things like, "Well, we couldn't attract the talent we need to work on the hill if we had to have Obamacare plans." Like, well. So then which is it? Are, are these good plans with lots of benefits that people will want to have? Or are these plans that stink, but it's better than nothing? And so for people that are getting something for free, they'll vote for you because something is better than nothing. But for the m- many people that fall in between being able to afford health care and having too much money to uh, qualify for Medicaid or for welfare health care, uh, they feel like they're just getting the, the short end of the stick. And they are. I know. I, I I just I just had to call in because I I've, I've just never had anybody pose the question, you know. Well, it it shows the hypocrisy. But keep in mind that Congress was exempted from insider trading laws for for quite. A, and I think they even watered down the bill that made it. You know, they they, they still want to be able to trade on political information. I mean, you know, you see you see how the markets move in response to political events. This is no surprise. If you have if you have the inside track on. What's happening within Congress? I'm, I'm sure that's that's valuable information. Congress was exempted from from insider trading uh, laws for a long time, and they don't want Obamacare plans either. So Obamacare for V, but not for me. That's the way the Congress likes to do things. But thank you, Marjorie, for calling in. Original Squad, Shields High. Carl in Indiana wants to bring it with a movie quote. Well, Carl, I guess it's been brought. What's up? You ready, bro? Oh, I was I was born ready. All right, this is dialogue between two characters. You ready? All right. You're down. You're downwind. The air current may tip them off. You think I can smell them coming? I did. I did. Commando. Bam. Schwarzenegger. Classic. Good action movie. I'm glad we're I'm glad we're on track here with the action movies. By the way, that movie is. Among the more ridiculous action movies that doesn't involve like superpowers or some kind of mutation where you can you know fly or shoot fire out of your eyes or something, uh, but I, it's a it's a great it's a great testosterone based action movie. I mean, it's very you know raw, very eighties. Uh, it's good stuff. But I, I've seen that one. I've seen that one a million times. Yeah, and that has uh, oh, what's his name? I can't remember the guy's name in it now. Anyway, but yeah, it's it's good stuff. Is that on, is that on your top five list, Carl? Oh, absolutely! It's required viewing for any action movie fan. And let me just put this caveat out there for all the callers because I listen to you every day, Buck. Love the show, but the action movie quotes people need to understand. It needs to be sometime between uh, 1979 to 1990. It needs to have probably some steroid abuse and maybe a cocaine fueled script. 
And that is what a true action movie is. And a lot of these westerns and obscure uh, movies that people are calling in, I appreciate it, but, you know, it, it, that's not an action movie. You know what I mean? Uh, Carl, I, I, I do know what you I try to bring everybody on the same page here with, with, the, with the limited, very specific genre of action movie. Now, Marshall and Carl Shields, hi, man. Thank you for calling in. Martial arts movies, that though, that gets a little, you know, there's a little leeway there. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and tell you Chuck Norris is not an action star. I mean, I'm, I'm not a communist, obviously. But, it, you know, once you get into, I mean, maybe Tombstone with Val Kilner and, uh, Val Kilner and, uh, uh, what's his name? The other guy who's not as good in the movie as Val Kilner, uh, Kurt Russell. It's pretty action movie-like in the the level of the fighting and the gunfights and stuff, but it's really a western. Uh, and there are some others that can. And look, I'll be the first to admit it. I just like the quote, and and they gave us the quote here. The team that helps us pull together some of the uh, uh, some of the audio audio sound bites that we play. But it was "You Shall Not Pass" is not technically speaking from an action an action movie. I think we can say that. I think that's a fair. A fair point. I mean, the Lord of the Rings is definitely, it's really fantasy genre, if we're going to be honest about it. Um, I remember I had a, a fourth grade teacher who would just read to us from a Lord of the Rings. Uh, he, he read to us from the books during, in between classes, and just the whole class would sit there and he would read from Lord of the Rings. And it was one of those things that at the time it didn't really register as this, but I later on I realized that Getting people, whatever it is, getting people to like reading at a young age or getting them really engaged with with written material in that way, I think has profound consequences. For me, it was uh, it was Alexander Dumas and the Three Musketeers. That was one of the earliest ones I can remember reading and loving. And actually, Michael Crichton and Jurassic Park, Congo, Sphere, Rising Sun, a lot of Michael Crichton's books. I started I started knocking those off when I was in the fourth fifth grade i think around there and that was that was the first time i can remember getting into a uh, an author's work and i you know I, I, I as a kid i wanted to read more than i wanted to watch tv and that's a really important you want to get to that place you want to read a book more than you want to watch something that's on tv and a movie even maybe an action movie and then i went on to tom clancy obviously um but that's story time for another time 844-900-BUCK we continue our journey together, my friends, in just a few minutes. He's an ex-CIA officer who knows how to outsmart the enemies of liberty. But I do have a very particular set of skills. Buck Sexton with America Now. Team, your mission, should you choose to accept it, call the Freedom Hunt Operations Center. 888-900-BUCK. Make contact. Unless you're under hostile surveillance. 888-900-2825. I want to tell you all a story that was uh, it came up in my mind because of a, a piece in the New York Times. The piece was the truth about New York City's elite high schools. And this this will quickly turn into a an example of a, a much broader narrative that I think affects... Well, if you yourself have gone to college in recent decades, if you have children who are college age or children in general who plan on going to college uh, and are going through these ad- admissions processes, this is an example of, well, it's, it's a fascinating case study and it's one in which I have some experience myself. So this 
let me uh, first let me tell you my own experience with it, and then I'll tell you what this piece is saying. So I was in New York City. You end up applying for high school if you go to a parochial school, Catholic school, or if you go to some of the uh, the private schools in the city uh, or public school, and uh, you can apply for different high schools, and they have a three tiered elite. Uh, public school, uh, well, there, there are three very elite public schools in the city. Uh, the most famous is Stuyvesant High School. And I remember this whole process because I took the test for Stuyvesant. Of course, now, uh, I was going to say humble brag, but I guess it's just brag, but who cares about me taking a test to get into high school like decades ago? I did end up getting in. I didn't go. Uh, but I remembered being outside of this high school and all you had was a, a ticket in one hand, this paper ticket. Remember, this is back in the day. This is when people took, you know, chariots to school and we all rode on horseback. This is back in the in the 90s uh, before people had, you know, I, I think back to my life as a teenager in New York City and just the notion of not having, like, we didn't have cell phones. Well, I had to use phone phones, right? I mean, now, could you imagine now? I feel like if I told a, you know, a 16-year-old, oh, you, you've got to actually dial that on a phone, they'll look at me like I'm uh, a dinosaur that's been, you know, unfrozen from my uh, my cryogenic chamber or something, uh, but yeah, they didn't have cell phones, and I and so all this I'm sure is now digital and much more advanced. But I remember waiting outside of this of this school it was actually it was the Stuyvesant uh, High School here in New York City, which is in some measures the most. I think by SAT score, it may be the most elite public school in the country. I think it it's either one, two, or three on the highest SAT, the highest mean SAT score for a group of people that's, you know, for students that are of a, a certain number of students overall. And it, it was, a, I never forget this. I was outside of this school. I knew I had to, I was at a, a Catholic private school at the time, and I knew I had to do very well on this test to get in. And uh, I remembered sitting there and or standing there outside with, I mean, massive, thousands of kids. I mean, it was just, it was like we were trying to get into a sports stadium, but we were actually going in to take a, a three or four hour long, whatever it was, standardized test. And for a lot of these kids, I mean, this is their, this is, I mean, their ticket, pardon the, the pun here, because they got a ticket on their hands, but it really is because if they get in, uh, Stuyvesant is a very elite place and they can go from there to any, you know, you name it, any number of fantastic colleges and universities. So there's a lot you can tell. I, I remembered also with these kids all around me and me too, but there was a lot of stress in their faces. They had two pencils in one hand and a piece of paper in the other. And I also remembered at the time looking around and seeing that there were a, there was a preponderance there were a, a majority even of the students were Asian, Asian Americans. Uh, there were a lot of them that were taking this test for for Stuyvesant High School, and this is not uh, this is not surprising because Stuyvesant High School again the most well among the most elite public schools in the entire country is over seventy percent Asian. It's about seventy three or seventy four percent, I think, uh, which does not in any way represent the demographics of New York City, and it's I think about. Uh, 15 to 20 percent white Caucasian. And I mean, I know all this because I applied and it's also a a pretty famous case study of what happens when you what happens in at least the New York City school system when there's so much emphasis put on. It's just the admission test, by the way. The test is it. So imagine instead of college admissions now where they play all these games and they do. And uh, some of the recent Supreme Court decisions on affirmative action have just been 
uh, such flimsy legal reasoning, but it's it's about social justice. And right? that's what these judges that keep these programs, uh, keep these admissions programs uh, alive with their social justice uh, balancing of different applicants. Some they won't do quotas because quotas not OK, but somehow they always have the same mix, more or less, of different ethnicities and preferred groups in their incoming classes. Um, and they just play, there are all these games that are played with the legal system as a result of this. Um, but anyway, uh, so Stuyvesant is a place where instead of the way they do in college, where you do SAT and your extracurriculars and they take this holistic approach, the holistic approach is just an excuse for the admissions committee. And this is at state schools. These are schools where you're and, you know, these are schools where your tax dollars are are going to set up the whole institute or paying for the whole institution. Well, I mean, people say their tuition, too. I know. But the, your tax dollars are going to state schools and they engage in these same practices. So it's the government. It's government uh, employees who are engaged in these practices of social justice, balancing and rebalancing to get a uh, an income class that literally looks the way they want it to look in terms of the ethnic representation. So in Stuyvesant High School, where it is just a test. Uh, you have almost three quarters of the incoming uh, year in and year out. I mean, it's it's amazing. The number I mean, almost three quarters of the incoming class is Asian American. And so in their literature, they'll say that because I, I think about two or three percent is African-American and maybe something similar to that is Hispanic. And in their literature, they'll always say that they are 75 percent uh, minority. And as I said to you, I, I took the test for this school. I'm very proud that I got in. I didn't end up going. I went to a scholarship high school, so it was also free, but it was a private scholarship, or it was a private scholarship, a school called Regis High School here in New York City, which is a fantastic place, by the way. Any school where the debate team is where all the, is, is like, that's for the coolest kids. That's the main thing. Not the football team, the, the debate team in my high school, as I sit here now as a radio host. It's kind of funny, I guess. Uh, but the debate team was the big thing in my high school. It's like, hey, man, what are you doing this weekend? Oh, I'm going to state. Oh, word, you're going to state? Yeah, that's right. Lincoln Douglas, baby, represent. That's what we call Lincoln Douglas debate. Uh, it was a nerdy school, obviously. And a lot of you are like, it's a very nerdy place. Don't make no mistake about it. But I liked it. So uh, it Stuyvesant High School, I took the test, went inside, and you could feel the pressure of all these young people because they felt like their futures were. It's one thing when you're applying to these schools and you have a many months of lag, many weeks of lag time before you find out. With Stuyvesant, it was, you know, you, you took the, it was all on this one day, this one test. But because the test is and it's it's what you would expect, you know, science and or, or uh, math and and uh, reading comprehension. And it's a pretty straightforward multiple choice test. And it's just your score. That's it. They don't play any games with anything else. It's a public school. That's it. This is targeted. This school is targeted as being uh, discriminatory. And it's a fa- it's a fascinating case study because you have a school that's seventy five percent minority, that is now. And this is uh, there was a piece in the New York Times written about this because they're saying it is uh, discriminatory. And so the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund uh, have filed uh, civil rights complaints against the place. So a school that is seventy five percent by our definition of what a minority is, an ethnic minority, a school that is 75% minority, that is the flagship of the New York City public school system, and that is among the most elite public schools in the country, is being sued for civil rights violations. Think about that one for a second. And 
they, of course, get into this discussion in, in the piece, and I've heard this before of, well, you know, this is uh, I, this creates a narrative, and the narrative is that uh, Asian students uh, come from backgrounds and cultures that are more um, that, that, that put a focus on uh, educational achievement and attainment, and that's not true, and that's not fair, and and then we go to the okay, but. If, if that's not true, that's not fair. We do have to, at some point, look at why, why is seventy-five percent of the incoming class at Stuyvesant High School Asian, year in and year out? Right, you know, it's seventy. Some years it's eighty. Some, but it's in that neighborhood. Why does that occur? Uh, having gone to school at my scholarship school with a number of Asian students who had parents who barely spoke English, by the way, and were themselves first-generation immigrants. You know, I mean, the parents had just come here, and their English was still very. Uh, uh, you know, imperfect. Um, and they would have they would have children that were these high achievers. And as we know, Asian Americans overall on a on a uh, per household basis have a higher average income than uh, white Americans do. And it's just fascinating to watch the social justice mechanisms that are in place. And an organization like the NAACP claim discrimination on a test that is the the criteria is just educational attainment and achievement. And it's primarily uh, the the biggest beneficiaries of this are, in fact, minority students of this of, of this objective test. But they don't feel the number is reflective enough of the overall balance of minorities in the city. And you just start to ask yourself. So do we need, oh no, we can't do quotas, but if we don't have something that's close to a quota, then, because quota, of course, then brings up a narrative of, well, some people are not achieving as highly as others are, even though they're in the same place. This is, by the way, part of what affirmative action does. This is why people like me oppose affirmative action. And it's one thing if you're going to talk about affirmative action in the context of slavery and the legacy of slavery and the historical wrongs. But this is also applying to Latino students, and I just need to know what what's the affirmative action, uh, what's the affirmative action argument there that doesn't apply to Asian Americans who are first generation students? They don't have any, there are no answers offered for any of this. But what you have is a willingness, in this case, to uh, wage a, a war on minority excellence. Because there are some minority organizations that don't feel that this is representative enough of different minority groups. And when you ask, well, what can be done to make this better? Or what's the, what do they really want? It's not even clear. They, they just object. Sure, they'll talk about uh, additional after-school programs and more test prep for disadvantaged areas that will benefit uh, minorities. But um there's there's really nothing here other than they just object. The NAACP objects to Stuyvesant High School. Uh, what what do they want to be done about this? Well, they can say that we need a percentage of the students need to match the percentage of, the, but then it's not about merit anymore. You can't have it both ways. This is what social justice warriors or social justice uh, organizations, whatever you want to call them, this is what they never grapple with this is why there's an intellectual dishonesty that's at the heart of a lot of these organizations and their agendas you, you can't have it both ways if you have an objective test of merit and think about this now think about this for your own state school wherever you live across the country think about this for in many cases uh police departments and fire departments and other civil and municipal authorities that have 
uh, written examinations as a part of the hiring process. They keep getting told, well, we don't have the proper, there's not the proper representation of different groups here. They say, well, this is an objective. Can we make a more objective test? Yeah, they try. And it's, and it never, it's never objective enough. It's never objective enough. They, they say it's discriminatory in outcome. Well, how do we fix that? Let's do additional programs to help people. Never changes. And the moment you begin to talk about it, and this is why in the case of Asian Americans, you have a very interesting uh, a very interesting part of the minority community to uh, address and to analyze in terms of their success and enrollment in school. This is true, by the way, in the California university system as well. There's a, a, a very large percentage at the, very, at the top of the university system, Berkeley and UCLA in California, because they did away with racial preferences. You have a lot of Asian Americans in, that system, uh, in, in the top of that system. And people say, well, that's discriminatory. Well, they need to come up with more than we just don't like the outcome. And there is, at the heart of a lot of these social justice initiatives, there's what turns into uh, either a, a dishonest approach or just a war on excellence, which is that we're, we're not going to tell people that they all have to achieve and achieve equally. We're going to determine before any of these decisions are made what we think the outcome's supposed to be. And if it doesn't look like that, we've got a problem with it. Um, I just think you see this, the, the Stuyvesant effect playing out in different ways across the country, particularly in the school system. And there's so little honest discussion as to why this is the way that it is and what could be done to really change it. And instead, like I said, you have one of the most elite, predominantly minority high schools in the country. And this is I read this piece in the New York Times just this week, getting sued by the NAACP because it's not the, it's not there's not enough of some minorities, they say. And so, therefore, it's discriminatory. Uh, the logic of this, I would wonder how anybody could make this make sense. But that's where we are. Uh, and I, I still remember it was a very important day for me as a, as a young person being there, realizing it was encapsulated all at once. Uh, you better be ready to work hard and to show up with your two pencils and your and your little ticket, you know, buck, wherever it, wherever it is you're going in life, because there's a lot of really talented, hungry, hardworking kids out there. It was a very, it was a really important moment, I can tell you that. We've got Melissa in West Virginia on the iHeart app. Welcome to the Freedom Hut, Melissa. Hello, how are you, Buck? I'm good, thank you. I wanted to say uh, Americans should be very careful what they wish for in health. We've got a prime example, easily available for anyone to investigate. It's called the Veterans Administration Medical Clinic, and they all have an abysmal record and it is the product of both parties so you're saying that those who believe that the more government runs our health care the better off we'll be all they have to do is look at the va which it should be noted is not is not for all americans it's for americans owed a very special debt by the american people and by the government in that these are people who served in the military and if we can't get it right for those who served in the military which is a much smaller pool of the, than the overall population and a specialized, a special pool in that they're owed something by the government. It's not just being an American. You've gone above and beyond and served your country. What makes anyone think that we're going to get it right for 320 million of us? Exactly. My husband is a 100% total and permanent service-connected disabled Marine Corps veteran with 13 years of service, ranked as staff sergeant. He receives abysmal care. Well, I thank your husband for his service. I'm very sorry to hear about his abysmal care. I've I've had stories before of people 
uh, similar to your husband and and their loved ones on the radio in the past telling me that they they get substandard care and this is just the expectations are constantly being lowered a lot of these uh, VA. now my understanding is that some VA some VA facilities are better than others which of course would make sense there's not a an overall standardized level that you get from all of them but the standardized level should be that they're ex- that they're all excellent and function as you know first world top class American care and instead uh, my uh, what I'm told and I, I haven't spent much time I've been in uh, Walter Reed but I haven't spent much time in uh, in in the uh, VA hospitals um, is that it's not very good. Yes, and you are bound by your physical address as to which VA you're allowed to attend. Yeah, I, I, I've I've heard that too, and I know that. They're trying to do more uh, public-private partnerships, I think, where you can get a voucher to go to get private service, but I'm sure that's a cumbersome and imperfect process. Uh, but, M- Melissa, thank you for uh, for calling in and uh, tell your husband we thank him for his service, and uh, we'll stay on the issue of uh, VA care and, of course, anything the government's doing with regard to health care in general. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, Nunez, the intelligence that's come out in the last few days, or the allegations of it at least, Russia, uh, a whole bunch of stuff. That's coming up third hour, so uh, stay right there. Buck Sexton with America Now. We are gold. The Freedom Hut is fired up as Team Buck assembles shoulder to shoulder, shields high. Call in 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. My friend Stephen Yates is online with us now. He is chairman of the Idaho Republican Party and also uh, formerly a uh, deputy deputy national security advisor for Vice President Dick Cheney. Uh, he's a national security expert. Stephen, great to have you. Great to be with you, Buck. Thank you. Uh, so I've got a, a range of topics I want to hit with you today, Steve. Uh, but first, the health care thing. You, you're a guy who's who's been to the dance in D.C. You know how this stuff goes. What's, what's your main takeaway with given what's happened today with the Obamacare repeal and replace? Well, there's two things. There is definite pressure from the grassroots expecting that Republicans are going to deliver on the promise of repeal and replace of Obamacare. But I'm just mindful of this being basically we're within the first hundred days of a presidency. And uh, there's a lot of, I think, reaction to this being all or nothing right now. And my sense is we're in the first few body blows of a multi-round fight. The Democrats are going after every possible way to stand in the way. And there are divisions within the Republican Party that have to get worked. So, uh, I'm, you know, I'm not at the point where I throw in the towel and say everyone has failed. But it's disappointing to watch how this uh, seems to have rolled through the week and kind of crashed on the rocks at the end of it. Are you surprised that Paul Ryan seems surprised by all of this? That's one part of this that I haven't really gotten a read on yet. Well, I, you know, I, it's hard to know what is a uh, real surprise and what is, well, I didn't quite expect it to play out exactly like this, but he had to know that he's dealing with complicated politics in his caucus. He had to know that the president was working some members of the caucus. Maybe they overestimated the president's poll with the Freedom Caucus members. Uh, and, uh, you know, they're trying to do something that is complicated, to do, go after repeal and replace in three broad stages, but the whole world is judging stage one. So, uh, you know, I've, I've seen a lot of complicated bills go forward in, in, the, uh, in the Congress and administrations try to push them through, uh, and a lot of them end up getting pulled apart a little bit like this. So I can't think that Speaker Ryan, with all his years on the Hill, is 
totally surprised that this is hard. Steve, you worked in a White House uh, national security function. Uh, I, I just want to ask what you think about what happened with House uh, Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence Chairman Devin Nunez. Uh, he says, well, he came out and, and said, and we played the clips here on air, that that he believed there was incidental or that he saw reports that there was incidental collection and that there was capturing of conversations of Trump and his associates that this was likely and that it didn't involve Russia. This is what he was out there saying. Now he's said something a little different. Play clip 95. We don't know until we won't know that until we actually uh, receive uh, all of the documentation. It's, it's hard to know where the information came from until you get the reports and have time to go through them uh, and see all the sourcing of the documents. Now, Steve, you're not on the inside anymore. I'm on the inside anymore. So we can talk about this because we don't know. What do you think, though? What is going on here? What can we look at and say that seems re- that seems plausible or reasonable or no, that seems like nonsense when it comes to Trump-Russia collusion, surveillance of Trump and his associates, Paul Manafort with this consulting and he's going to testify. There's all these different storyline threads. Where are you on all this? What do you make of it? Well, I think first uh, for Chairman Nunez, and I know him to be a pretty professional and good guy, and uh, and whenever you're dealing with uh, hot and controversial topics in intelligence, you always have to be careful about how quick you go on partial reports. And I don't know how complete or partial information there was on this, but we do know that for seemingly weeks there's been this drumbeat of there is no evidence of any surveillance of the Trump campaign. Uh, and we know that there was some surveillance of the Trump campaign, at least incidentally, in that that's what led to General Flynn being fired. Uh, and so there's at least evidence that some of that happened incidentally. Uh, and what sounds to me like is that the, uh, the investigators for the House Intelligence Committee are finding more information of that incidental collection. And what, what that means to ordinary Americans our intelligence community goes out and gathers things on foreign targets, and occasionally those foreign targets end up talking to American citizens. There's really strict rules on how that's handled, and in this case, uh, the major, major, I think, felonious violation is that some of that was made public. And it seems like clearly for political payback, and in this case, political payback that worked, and that Flynn ended up resigning because of that leak of information. Uh, but I'm wondering, Steve, let, let's say that we find out that and we and we don't get individuals because I'm always I, I think that the people that do the people that uh, actively uh, subvert rules about the protection of of classified, you know, they tend to know that they're they're taking a pretty big risk. And so they usually take some mitigation of the chances that they'll be caught in that. But let's just say that we do find out based on what Nunez, the investigation goes forward, that there was some collection, really that what he initially said was true, that there was incidental collection, Trump and some of his people got caught up in this, and then there was an intentional disregarding from within the intelligence community by some people of of the procedures that are meant to protect privacy, uh, and there's a violation of those rules, and it was done uh, you know, purposefully. What, what then? I mean, you know, if we find out that this happened under Obama's watch, do you think there are any political consequences? I, I, do you think that I don't think anyone I don't think anyone gets prosecuted over this unless they find this specific individual. So what do you see as the political, uh, you know, second order effects of all this? 
Well, at a very minimum, uh, this would have been a highly compartmentalized program. And again, for, uh, for the rest of America, that means a very short-numbered list of people would have access to the reporting that comes from it. Names, individuals would be on that list. And one by one, you can go through that named list and identify the people who would be most likely or, if have evidence, were responsible for disclosure. Uh, disclosure of something of this magnitude is enormous. I mean, it's one of those things that is very, very close to treason. Uh, and uh, so, I, you know, I think it's extremely serious, and I do think that there is a lawful and oversight role to conduct that kind of investigation. Politically, I think Manafort coming forward, I mean, I have no idea what his calculus is, or, uh, but, I, but I'm pretty sure that there was all smoke and no fire with regard to the accusations. Uh, and so I mean, the only, only collusion that anyone can really point to between Russia and leaders of America is when the former president leaned across a hot mic and told a Russian leader that he would be more flexible after an election. That was just in-your-face evidence of an American leader going to be more accommodating to the Russians if he gets past an election. You know, there hasn't even been any specifics put forward about what uh, the Trump campaign or any of the people involved would have advocated by way of policy that's different. So I, I'm just one that, you know, you got to see some evidence of things moving before you can go forward with an indictment. And on Manafort, I think he probably feels like it's time to just come forward. He's a reasonably intelligent, experienced guy. He probably feels like he can lay things out there, uh, clear his name, but also push back on some of these false narratives. What do you, what would you put the, the percentage, uh, the percentages, the, the odds here, of some truly nefarious let's say it's let's let's take the president himself out of this just for the sake of discussion but that one of his underlings campaign aides any of the above uh were involved in something with russia that was unseemly with regard specifically to the election against hillary clinton do you give this a one in ten shot 50 50 one in a thousand well, where where are you on that based on what we know so far I'd say it's pretty low that there was anything that was substantively going to make a difference on the administration. Uh, given the number of people involved in campaigns and, and the kinds of work that people do in Washington, there's a chance, probably low, uh, that there's someone somewhere that was under contract to try to advocate for a particular kind of policy on behalf of a foreign government. And then it turns out on a campaign, they're advocating for that policy. But, you know, that's not illegal, as far as I can tell. Uh, There could be questions of propriety, and it would come down to kind of the rules of the campaign, but there's nothing illegal about that. I I keep saying to people, Uh, if if Paul Manafort sat down across the table from, I don't know, let's just say the head of the FSB, whatever, it doesn't matter, you know, with with the, the, the sketchiest Russian operative one can imagine, whoever that may be. And in our hypothetical here, if the Russian says to him, you know, we've got some things in the works that are really going to mess up the, you know, the Hillary campaign, just, you know, wink and a nod. And Manafort just said, OK, you know, thanks <laughs> and walked away. There is no federal crime. There's no crime at all that has been committed there. It may not you know, it may not look very nice, but there's no as far as I know. And I've even asked Andy McCarthy and others about this who really understand federal criminal law. There's no federal crime. There isn't. And you'd also be a fool to conduct yourself assuming that someone else is going to help you win a campaign anyway. So, you know, you, you go into these things where, you know, if a foreign government was planning something to influence 
American voters, I'd say at least nine times out of ten, maybe ten times out of out of ten, American voters kind of smell it and recoil, and it tends to backfire on those they think it's going to help. Uh, but there's just there's just no evidence that anyone won or lost this election other than Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. Yeah, it's it's not even a good collusion plan as it's been laid out to me. We're we're going to get into Podesta's email account and release his unclassified emails and. And the Trump campaign would want to be involved in this, given all the it's just it's just crazy. But uh, so many people really believe it. And it's I don't know. It's it's frustrating to see this continue to to get all the attention that it does. Although investigate everyone. okay, investigate. Fine. Stephen, uh, one more topic I want to hit with you before we got to go into a break. Uh, North Korea, a lot of headlines recently. Uh, People are seemingly more concerned about North Korea now than they've been in a while. What's going on here? How much of this should we be worried about? I think it is troubling. I do. I think that the current leader of North Korea is crazier and more dangerous than his father and his grandfather were before him. Uh, he's tested more uh, missile enhancements than his father did. Uh, he's developed their nuclear programs further, and literally nothing the United States has tried in Republican or Democrat administrations has changed that trajectory. Uh, it's a very, very difficult one. Uh, to try to figure out how to change. And so you've got a new administration trying new things. Uh, I'd say this is very high on the list of crises that could shock this administration early in its tenure. Uh, but uh, I don't want, it's certainly not my hope. Uh, but I think that the, the discussions that Secretary Tillerson had in Beijing were trying to press the Chinese very, very hard that the pre- President Trump expects them to do more to influence their ally. And if they don't, all options truly are on the table. The United States doesn't want a war, doesn't want to have those kinetic options, so to speak. But the Chinese are going to have to do some things more profound than they've contemplated in the last decade, uh, or we're stuck with Kim Jong-un provoking us. Any military action, though, between the U.S. and North Korea would be... <laughs> Uh, that is very frightening stuff, considering, as you say, we're dealing with a total lunatic, this regime that is almost like something from another another planet. It's hard to believe that it still exists uh, at this point in time. And they've got a whole bunch of all kinds of the nastiest munitions imaginable. And South Korea is right there. you got Seoul, Japan within striking distance, all these different places. It seems like, Stephen, there's very little likelihood that if there was a military exchange, it would be a limited and contained affair. I agree completely, and that's why I hope when they say all options are on the table, they mean all options. Not the worst of the worst and not the weakest of the weak, but they need to be trying all of the options. Intelligence, cyber, economic, diplomatic, whatever, everything needs to be maximalized before it gets into one of those truly catastrophic categories. And hopefully we never, ever get close to that. But with this regime, it's existed far longer than it ever should have. And every single day we live with massive proliferation risk. And one day they're going to be able to have their three-stage three missile that can reach us and reach others at, at long distance. So uh, this, has got, this is something that time does not solve. And whether we like it or not, the new administration and our allies really have to grapple with this right now. Stephen Yates is chairman of the Idaho Republican Party. Check out uh, also what he does on the advisory side at DCIAadvisory.com and uh, Yates DCIA on Twitter. Stephen, have a great Friday. Thanks for joining us, my friend. Thank you, Buck. Take care.
Uh, team hitting a break here. Eight four four nine hundred buck on those phone lines. We can take action movie quotes. We can take serious analysis about national security or politics. Whatever you want. Team, we have a, a Facebook poll out there that's uh, on facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. If you're not following, please uh, click follow or like on the page. Uh, but the question is, is the healthcare debacle, well, is it a debacle? Is it a big deal? So far of uh, Team Buck entries here or the votes that we've tallied, uh, 50% of you say it's embarrassing. They had seven years to get this right. Uh, 20% said no, revamping the government takes time. And then about 22% said Buck Sexton 2020. So thank you for the vote of, uh, of confidence there. Appreciate that. Uh, unlikely that's going to happen, but hey, you never know. Uh, we have Sterling in Wyoming on the iHeart app. What's up, Sterling? Hey, How are you doing, Buck? I'm good. Good. So I have an action movie quote for you that I hope it qualifies. Yeah. Here. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. It smells like victory. Apocalypse now. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think I think it qualifies that action movie quote. Great movie. Based on Conrad's uh, Heart of Darkness, which I feel like a lot of people forget. The storyline is, or the, the, the way the story progresses is very similar to Conrad's Heart of Darkness. So it's just a new and updated version of that. Sometimes the old stuff is a great basis for an updated story. Yeah. Have you read Conrad's Heart oh, of Darkness? It's actually worth reading. It's good. Okay. Yeah, okay. I'm just throwing that out there. Uh, love the show, Buck. Hey, Michael, thank you so much, man. Shields high. Have a great weekend. Uh, oh, Sterling, rather. Pardon me. Sterling, thank you. I got my names confused on my screeners. Thank you, Sterling. And now we have Michael, also in Wyoming, on the iHeart app. What's up, Michael? Hi, how are you, Buck? I'm good. Um, and just so you know, I got the iHeart app uh, solely so that I could listen to you. That's very kind of you, and I greatly appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Yeah, I picked you up uh, listening to you sub in for Rush a couple times and uh, just found your critical thinking to be without peer. Thank you so, so much. On to my point. Um, I'm calling concerning the VA, but if there's time, I'll also have an additional question for you. Sure, sure. Yeah, we got a few. We got a few minutes. Go ahead. Excellent. Okay, so uh, concerning the VA, uh, at the time I met my wife, which was 23 years ago, she was a nurse manager at a VA facility in California. Um, I met her through my best friend, who was doing his residency on her ward. Uh, he called me one Saturday and said. Hey, want to come play beach volleyball with some nurses? So uh, nobody in their right mind is going to say no to that. So um, he told me about issues uh, where he witnessed malpractice that did grave harm to patients, but nothing was ever done about it. They would simply uh, close the file, uh, uh, let the patient go, and not even bring up their fiduciary duty of pointing it out to the patient. Um, so he got away from the VA as quickly as possible. My wife, uh, at the time was going through an issue with her assistant manager. Her assistant manager was uh, a black lady. And, and by the way, of all the friends I've ever had that were black, not a single one of them has ever asked me to refer to them as African-American. Um, but anyway, so the, the lady refused to do any administrative work that my wife assigned to her. She would just blow it off and then, you know, go and cruise the hallways and she'd do her clinical work, but she wouldn't do any of the administrative work. 
So at the end of the first month that she was assigned to her, my wife... Um, we're, we're going a little, a little into detail here that might be beyond, uh, you know, beyond what is oh, useful for us. Sorry about that. It's all right. Go ahead. Yeah, you got it. Okay. So my wife's supervisor informed her that she was going to have to pick up the slack because they were not going to put the assistant manager on report. Okay. okay. Uh, yeah. But I mean, how, how does this uh, tell me about, I see horrific care is that what I see on my screen here, the admin work doesn't translate into that. So what do we got? Oh, um, Okay, sorry about that. I didn't know that's what that was. Um, anytime anything was reported about cases, um, my wife was uh, brought in front of the board and told that that's none of her concern, that it was being taken care of by the doctor. Uh-huh, okay. Uh, so one patient in one case used a lighter to try and burn a, uh, a thread on his dressing, which were... <laughs> petroleum dressings, and he set his legs on fire. Um, they put that out. This gentleman came back every month as soon as he got... Uh, we only have about 10 seconds here, sir. Okay, sorry about that. No, it's, um, Michael, yeah. look, I appreciate you calling in. I, I wish we had more time to hear some of the details here, but unfortunately we're, we're into a hard break. But thank you for uh, calling in, and team, we'll be right back. Buck Sexton with America Now. We are bold. The Freedom Hut is fired up as Team Buck assembles shoulder to shoulder, shields high. Call in 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The campaign to oust ISIS from Mosul is well underway and, in fact, is showing some signs of real progress. This would be the biggest blow dealt to the Islamic State since its blitzkrieg campaign into Iraq from Syria from its stronghold in Raqqa and the surrounding areas a few years back. Uh, So what does the rest of this campaign look like and uh, what does the administration need to do to follow through on what's going on? Uh, We're joined by Jennifer Caffarella. She's the lead intelligence planner at the Institute for the Study of War. Jennifer, thank you for calling in. Thanks for having me. So I, I know as part of your uh, part of your duties over at ISW, you follow very closely this campaign in Mosul uh, that is, what is it, uh, over 100,000 Iraqi security forces involved in this, everything from Iraqi military to Kurdish militia and Shia militias and U.S. forces providing assistance and air cover. Uh, first of all, if you can just bring us up to speed on how is this going, uh, what is, at what stage of this fight does the Iraqi government, our ally, the Iraqi government, find itself? Sure. So this, of course, is the largest military operation in the fight against ISIS thus far. It's a very complex operation with a lot of moving parts uh, and certainly is an ambitious operation to take control of such a large city of Mosul uh, from ISIS. The fight thus far has been incredibly difficult. But the Iraqi security forces, with help from the United States and the anti-ISIS coalition, has made tremendous progress clearing the eastern half of the city. Mosul is, is bisected by, uh, the, by, by a river. And the, Iraqi the Tigris River runs through the middle of the western side of it as Sunni Arab majority. So they're now in the Sunni Arab portion? Yep. So they're, well, the, 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 most the whole city, I know, is Sunni Arab, but it's the Kurds Arab. usually have yep. more of a control on the eastern bank. Go ahead. Sure. So we're now in in Western Mosul. The new objective, of course, is to seize the Great Mosque of Mosul, which is the location where the ISIS leader declared the caliphate. 
so clearing that mosque will be a major win uh, for the government and will really signal uh, the, the coming end of ISIS in that city. What Do we have some sense of uh, casualty estimates uh, in terms of how many Islamic State fighters have, have, been killed, uh, have been killed in this fighting? And also, do you have any, uh, any updates or any sense of the, the truth of these reports that I've just seen in the last 24 hours, that there may have been some airstrikes where uh, was CNN reporting U.S. military investigating if airstrikes caused nearly 300 civilian deaths. But first, t- talk to me about the ISIS casualties. Uh, have they been about what was expected? Are we talking about thousands of fighters killed or captured? What, what have they found out since they en- entered the city a few months ago? I mean, the sure, Iraqi so forces. Sure. So the number and strength of the ISIS fighting force in Mosul has actually surprised the coalition. Uh, we don't have specific numbers on the number of ISIS dead, uh, but we do know that uh, thousands of ISIS members had been holding the city uh, three-quarters of it or so are now recaptured. So you can imagine the reduction in ISIS's fighting strength. Uh, in terms of the airstrikes, the coalition, of course, takes great care to avoid civilian casualties. It has been a primary focus of this military effort and is, in fact, one of the reasons why progress has been so deliberate in order to avoid uh, that outcome. Of course, this is still war. It is still a battlefield. Uh, so there have been reports that I've seen of civilian casualties, and it does appear that uh, the U.S. military is very closely evaluating the outcome of that strike. Now, one of the concerns from the beginning of the effort to retake Mosul from the Islamic State has been the multi-sectarian nature of the Iraqi government and Iraqi government allied forces that have both secured the access routes to the city as well as been part of this clearing and hold operation inside the city. And and people have been worried about Shia militias and their role in this from the beginning, have we seen any signs of rising sectarian tension among the forces that are fighting against the Islamic State, or so far are they uh, playing pretty well with each other? So far, the ability of these diverse forces to maintain their unity in the fight against ISIS has been impressive. We haven't really seen a breakdown. Of course, the main question is what happens after the, co- the common enemy, ISIS, is removed from this battlefield? Are these different forces, which do sometimes have competing agendas, you know, Iran backs some of these forces and uses them as a proxy in the case of the Shia militias. So the question is whether that kind of infighting will really start to pick up after ISIS is defeated. It's certainly a main concern. Now, if this operation concludes within about a month or so, which is what I see from from estimates, including from an ISW estimate here, uh, and that the Iraqi government takes back the most populous and most important city that ISIS has ever had, Mosul, uh, takes it back from the Islamic State. It's obviously, cre- it'll create some some momentum for the Iraqi government, and this is something to be uh, celebrated to some degree. But are there other areas inside Iraq that are still, that still need to be uh, cleared and held? Or would this be really the death knell for ISIS as a, an entity that can hold territory inside of Iraq? I mean, I know there could be insurgency elements that that stay around, but are there still villages anywhere that they really need to go into that are considered entirely hostile? Yep, there are still hostile villages, ISIS-held villages. Uh, Hawija is one area. It's southeast of Mosul, and it's actually an area from which ISIS has launched some pretty uh, devastating attacks into Kirkuk and into Kurdish-held areas. Uh, so that will need to be cleared, as well as areas out west uh, in Anbar province near the Syrian border. 
where ISIS does still control large portions of southeastern Syria and some villages on the Iraqi side of that border along the Euphrates River as well. Can you talk a bit about the effort to get closer and and to, to wrap the noose around ISIS in Raqqa, or is that outside of... I, I know you, you handle the Iraqi side of the equation. I was wondering if you can update us a little bit on what's happening with the Syrian side of the anti-ISIS fight. No, certainly. I actually covered both sides. Okay, there we go. So please, uh, what's going on there? <laughs> yeah, so the battlefield on the Syrian side is even more complex, if you can imagine, than on the Iraqi side. Uh, the primary U.S. Uh, ground partner there, the Syrian Democratic Forces, have just launched an ambitious new phase of the operation to encircle Raqqa before taking the city. Uh, so the exact nature of the force that will take the city is still unclear. It appears the Trump administration is still considering its options. Uh, the goal for now is for the Syrian Democratic Forces to seize control of a military airbase and a dam, a hydroelectric dam, west of Raqqa City, which is key infrastructure that ISIS holds. And after taking that infrastructure, the coalition will be that much more closer to setting the necessary conditions for an actual assault on the city. Now, the anti-ISIS coalition that's been taking back Mosul, I know I saw estimates from the start of that operation were over 100,000 all in, meaning those that were also in just blocking mode to make sure that people couldn't come in or out of the area, and then the, the actual clear and hold force inside the city itself. Do we have an estimate, do we have a sense of how large the anti-ISIS force in Syria is, or is that just too murky for us to get real numbers? It's a little murky at this stage. We do know that the Syrian Democratic Forces uh, have something around 40,000 fighters in all of northeastern Syria. Uh, Raqqa, of course, is a much smaller city than Mosul, uh, but likely to be defended on the same scale. And so while there are 40,000-ish Syrian Democratic Forces, they're not professionally trained. In Iraq, we have units that the U.S. has been helping to train since, you know, the, the previous Iraq war. Uh, and that kind of military capability just doesn't exist in Syria. So it's hard to compare the numbers directly uh, across that border. And what is ISIS's next move, assuming that they lose Mosul in uh, the weeks and months ahead and things get even more difficult for them to operate in Syria? Do we see a displacement of fighters already occurring? Are they trying to shore up a a last defense, not just of Raqqa, but of some other areas inside of Syria? What can we expect from their side of the equation? Certainly. So we do expect more uh, and more deadly attacks in western Syria uh, as ISIS tries to see if there are vulnerabilities in the Syrian regime's defensive line uh, that ISIS can push against. Uh, ISIS is also attempting to expand into Jordan, south of Syria, Uh, which would be highly destabilizing to the region if ISIS managed to do so. On the Iraqi side, the ISIS play is an insurgency, as you referenced earlier, uh, but likely also a very concerted effort to spoil upcoming elections. Iraq is supposed to hold elections in September of this year. Uh, It will be a very big watershed moment if if the elections are able to occur and occur peacefully Uh, to transition a military success into a political victory uh, and a political outcome. So ISIS will certainly try to prevent that from happening. Jennifer Caffarella is the lead intelligence planner at the Institute for the Study of War. Uh, You can go check out the website and read all of her latest at understandingwar.org. Jennifer, thank you for making time for us. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. 
Uh, team, going to hit a break. Got to close out strong. On the other side, be right back. Now, I don't want to seem like a hater, but of course, whenever you start out saying that, you're probably going to sound like a hater. So here I am. Uh, but uh, I missed this story earlier in the week, and I was thinking, by the way, we're going to start on Fridays also with our action movie quotes. I think the last part of the show, we're going to do uh, last call for, for stories, meaning that we're going to touch on anything that I meant to get to earlier in the week, uh, particularly lighter fare, you know, the the, the, the snackable and uh, and easy to easy to digest news stories that are just fun to, to chat about for a little bit. So this would fall into that. So put a we'll put a pin in that uh, in in branding the segment last call uh, until next week. But this would be in that general bucket o stories. You got Chelsea Clinton, uh, and this this is why you know I'm talking about being a hater here. And look, I don't know the woman. She could be delightful, and I I don't. I'm not personally going to trash. I don't. I try not to. At least I'm not perfect. Obviously, I try not to trash people that I don't know. First of all, I try not to trash people. Period, because it's mean. But I, I, it's not a personal thing. It's a public figure thing. There's a difference, right? So when I say that you know Nancy Pelosi doesn't know anything, it's not because I'm trying to be mean to her. Because I know she's somebody's grandma. It's that she wields a lot of power, and I think is completely uh, in over her head and is. Uh, destructive to America. Okay, so that's if she just decided to be Nancy Pelosi, who's super rich and lives in California and hangs out. I wouldn't still be talking about her on on the radio. It's she's a public figure. It's not that I'm trying to be mean about somebody's grandma. Chelsea Clinton is also a public figure. She is not somebody who can play the whole. Oh well, I'm just you know the the, the child of famous people or because that's it's not nice to bring people into things. Uh, that they, you know, when they've done nothing themselves, but they just happen to have famous relatives or parents. No, she she holds herself up as a public figure. In fact, she gives speeches for $50,000 a pop. She was a correspondent for, what was it, uh, 30, not 30 Rock. That's the, uh, that's the I find very amusing show on, that used to be on uh, NBC with uh, Alec Baldwin, whose politics are terrible. He's a very talented actor, though. Uh, Tina Fey wrote that show. I forget, Rock Rock Center, I think it was called, something like that. She's paid $600,000 for like 30, 30 total minutes of on-air work, which is somebody who does three hours of radio night, I have to tell you, that would be pretty awesome. Uh, yeah, it's, that's not how it goes in this business. But she, so yeah, she made the six hundred grand for those 30 minutes. And now there was a report earlier in the week, and this is where me not being a hater comes in, or she was going to be honored with a originally it was reported as a lifetime achievement award from Variety magazine. Uh, it turns out it's not a lifetime achievement award. It's an impact award from Variety in partnership with Lifetime. Now she's vice chairman of the I don't like this thing when people say you're vice chair because a chair is an object, not a person. So you're either chairman or a chairwoman or what but we he'll say, oh, he's the chair of you know, uh, he's the chair of women and gender studies at such and such university. Can't we just say chairman? Can we just we just accept that? It's not a, not a big deal, everybody. I know you accept it, but, you know, the social justice warriors freak out about everything. So she's uh, she's getting this award, and this is where I start to have a tough time with all this. Um, you can be the child of very powerful people, and that makes you famous, and you can, and of course, we live in a capitalist society. They can also make you very wealthy. You can inherit a lot of money, and that's all fine. But 
when I'm being told by the media that I'm also supposed to stand up and not necessarily literally, but sometimes literally stand up and clap for the great accomplishments of the hyper privileged from my own generation, no less, who have never had to work a real day in their lives, who have never had to actually sweat it out, who have never had the experience of showing up uh, to do a job they did not want to do, where nobody cared that they were there, where they could be replaced, and they and it was constantly made known to them they could be replaced on a moment's whim, and if they didn't have the job, they didn't have a way of paying the rent. Uh, that's not ever been Chelsea Clinton's reality. She went to a lot of different schools, which is fine, but as we know, especially with some of the fancier schools, if you have a famous last name, it just turns into a long version, an expensive version of finishing school. So you just get to be a perpetual student, but say you're at you know Stanford or Harvard or wherever, and not do any real study of consequence beyond just an extended liberal arts education. Um, but it sounds cool at cocktail parties, and it gives you degrees. And degrees, especially in the social sciences, are supposed to confer legitimacy and gravitas. I, I think that that's almost always very overstated. Most of these master's degrees that people get, especially in things like politics or uh, international relations or any of this, uh, journalism, uh, social studies or whatever they call it, uh, is just a, an expensive way of having your parents uh, you know, keep you occupied for a while and let everyone, tell, let everyone think that you're doing something worthwhile. Uh, but it's okay to me that Chelsea Clinton is the you know it's fine she's the daughter of of very famous people very famous and formerly very powerful people not not as powerful anymore uh, but I, I just it's not okay it begins to just burn and annoy and irritate a little too much when I'm told that you know she's done all these great things you know working for uh, mummy and daddy's charity that's not even really a charity it's an influence peddling scheme is not something that I'm about to stand around and say, wow, that's really great. And in fact, if you're going to be a part of that, then I think you also have to be a part of the recognition that a lot of us have had that this charity is not really about helping anyone. And it's really about helping the Clintons first and foremost. And that there's this award given out. This is just where I, I get on my little soapbox here I do not like nepotism in politics, and I know we could start to point out examples of it on the Republican side, too. I'm well aware. I do not like this. And it just shows you how far the celebrity culture goes in this country now, where even being related to somebody who has a, a cult of personality of one kind or another is enough that some people think you should have that, that you should be given power and, and entrusted with major responsibility. Uh, Chelsea Clinton may be a, a lovely person and, and a wonderful mom and all that. I have no idea. But as a public figure, she has done nothing. She's done nothing except enrich herself and uh, do so in a way that I, I don't I don't see why there's any award or any reason that we have to pretend that this is worthy of of great achievement or anything else. Uh, and it, it's just too much. You see it a lot with uh, with, with my generation to people in their 30s and 40s who have famous and rich mummy and daddy, uh, they want us all to clap for them too and act like they've done a lot. And most of the time they haven't. Uh, so Chelsea, not not getting a Lifetime Achievement Award from Buck. That much I, that much I can tell you. Or a, whatever, Impact Award. What does it even mean? What does it mean? 
Uh, download the podcast, please. Buck Sexton uh, with America Now on iTunes. Please subscribe if you have not already. Uh, share it with a friend. Tell some people about the show and tell them to download the iHeartRadio app so they can listen live. Until Monday, have a great weekend. Shields high.